Chapter Seven of the Lamplighter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Lamplighter by Maria Susanna Cummins. Chapter Seven. Prayer is the burden of a sigh, the falling of a tear, the upward glancing of an eye, when none but God is near. Montgomery. It would have been hard to find two children, both belonging to the poorer class, whose situations in life had, thus far, presented a more complete contrast than those of Gertie and Willie. With Gertie's experiences, the reader is somewhat acquainted. A neglected orphan, she had received little of that care, and still less of that love, which Willie had always enjoyed. Mrs. Sullivan's husband was an intelligent country clergyman, but as he died when Willie was a baby, leaving very little property for the support of his family, the widow went home to her father, taking her child with her. The old man needed his daughter, for death had made sad inroads in his household since she left it, and he was alone. From that time the three had lived together in humble comfort, for, though poor, industry and frugality secured them from want. Willie was his mother's pride, her hope, her constant thought. She spared herself no toil or care to provide for his physical comfort, his happiness, and his growth in knowledge and virtue. It would have been strange enough if she had not been proud of a boy whose uncommon beauty, winning disposition, and early evidences of a manly and noble nature, won him friends even among strangers. He had been a handsome child, but there was that observable in him, now that he had nearly reached his thirteenth year, far excelling the common boyish beauty, which consists merely in curly hair, dark eyes, and rosy cheeks. It was his broad, open forehead, the clearness and calmness of his full gray eye, the expressive mouth, so determined and yet so mild, the well-developed figure and ruddy complexion, proclaiming high health, which gave promise of power to the future man. No one could have been in the boy's company half an hour without loving and admiring him. He had a naturally warm-hearted, affectionate disposition, which his mother's love and the world's smiles had festered. An unusual flow of animal spirits, tempered by a natural politeness toward his elders and superiors, a quick apprehension, a ready command of language, a sincere sympathy in others' pleasures and pains, in fine, one of those genial natures that wins hearts one knows not how. He was fond of study, and until his twelfth year, his mother kept him constantly at school. The sons of poor parents have, in our large cities, almost every educational advantage that can be obtained by wealth. And Willie, having an excellent capacity, and being constantly encouraged and exhorted by his mother to improve his opportunities to the utmost, had attained a degree of proficiency quite unusual at his age. When he was twelve years old, he had an excellent opportunity to enter into the service of an apothecary, who did an extensive business in the city, and wanted a boy to assist in his store. The wages that Mr. Bray offered were not great, but there was the hope of an increased salary, and at any rate, situated as Willie was, it was not a chance to be overlooked. Fond as he was of his books, he had long been eager to be at work, helping to bear the burden of labor in the family. His mother and grandfather assented to the plan, and he gladly accepted Mr. Bray's proposals. He was sadly missed at home, for as he slept at the store during the week, he rarely had much leisure to make even a passing visit to his mother, except on Saturday, when he came home at night and passed Sunday. So Saturday night was Mrs. Sullivan's happy night, and the Sabbath became a more blessed day than ever. 
When Willie reached his mother's room on the evening of which we have been speaking, he sat down with her and Mr. Cooper, and for an hour conversation was brisk with them. Willie never came home that he had not a great deal to relate concerning the occurrences of the week, many a little anecdote to tell, many a circumstance connected with the shop, the customers, his master the apothecary, and his master's family, with whom he took his meals. Mrs. Sullivan was interested in everything that interested Willie, and it was easy to see that the old grandfather was more entertained by the boy than he was willing to appear. For, though he sat with his eyes upon the floor, and did not seem to listen, he usually heard all that was said, as was often proved afterward by some accidental reference he would make to the subject. He seldom asked questions, and indeed it was not necessary, for Mrs. Sullivan asked enough for them both. He seldom made comments, but would occasionally utter an impatient or contemptuous expression regarding individuals, or the world in general, thereby evidencing that distrust of human nature, that want of confidence in men's honesty and virtue, which formed, as we have said, a marked trait in the old man's character. Willie's spirits would then receive a momentary check, for he loved and trusted everybody, and his grandfather's words, and the tone in which they were spoken, were a damper to his young soul. But with the elasticity of youth and a gay heart, they would soon rebound, and he would go on as before. Willie did not fear his grandfather, who had never been severe to him, never having, indeed, interfered at all with Mrs. Sullivan's management. But he sometimes felt chilled, though he hardly knew why, by his want of sympathy, with his own warm-heartedness. On the present occasion, the conversation having turned at last upon True Flint and his adopted child, Mr. Cooper had been unusually bitter and satirical, and as he took his lamp to go to bed, wound up with remarking that he knew very well Gertie would never be anything but a trouble to Flint, who was a fool not to send her to the almshouse at once. There was a pause after the old man left the room. Then Willie exclaimed, "'Mother, what makes Grandfather hate folks?' "'Why, he don't, Willie.' I don't mean exactly hate. I don't suppose he does that, quite. But he doesn't seem to think a great deal of anybody. Do you think he does? Oh, yes, he don't show it much, said Mrs. Sullivan. But he thinks a great deal of you, Willie, and he wouldn't have anything happen to me for the world. And he likes Mr. Flint, and— Oh, yes, I know that, of course. I don't mean that. But he doesn't think there's much goodness in folks. And he don't seem to think anybody's going to turn out well, and— "'You're thinking of what he said about little Gertie. "'Well, she ain't the only one. "'That's what made me speak of it now. "'But I've often noticed it before, "'particularly since I went away from home "'and am only here once a week. "'Now you know I think everything of Mr. Bray, "'and when I was telling to-night how much good he did "'and how kind he was to old Mrs. Morris and her sick daughter, "'grandfather looked just as if he didn't believe it, "'or didn't think much of it, somehow. "'Oh, well, Willie,' said Mrs. Sullivan, you mustn't wonder much at that. Grandpa's had a good many disappointments. You know he thought everything of Uncle Richard, and there was no end to the trouble he had with him. And there was Aunt Sarah's husband. He seemed to be such a fine fellow when Sally married him. But he cheated Father dreadfully at last, so that he had to mortgage his home in High Street, and finally give it up entirely. He's dead now, and I don't want to say anything against him. But he didn't prove what we expected, and it broke Sally's heart, I think. That was a dreadful trial to father, for she was the youngest and had always been his pet. And just after that, mother was taken down with her death-stroke, and there was a quack doctor prescribed for her, that father always thought did her more hurt than good. 
Oh, take it all together. He's had a great deal to make him look on the dark side now. But you mustn't mind it, Willie. You must take care and turn out well yourself, my son. And then he'll be proud enough. He's as pleased as he can be when he hears you praised and expects great things of you one of these days. Here the conversation ended, but not until the boy had added another to the many resolves already made. That, if his health and strength were spared, he would prove to his grandfather that hopes were not always deceitful, and that fears were sometimes groundless. Oh, what a glorious thing it is for a youth when he has ever present with him a high, a noble, an unselfish motive! What an incentive it is to exertion, perseverance, and self-denial! What a force to urge him on to ever-increasing efforts! Fears that would otherwise appall, discouragements that would dishearten, labors that would weary, obstacles that would dismay, opposition that would crush, temptation that would overcome, all, all lie disarmed and powerless, when, with a single-hearted and worthy aim, he struggles for the victory. And so it is, that those born in honor, wealth, and luxury, seldom achieve greatness. They were not born for labor, and without labor, nothing that is worth having can be won. Why will they not make it their great and absorbing motive, a worthy one it certainly would be, to overcome the disadvantages of their position, and make themselves great, learned, wise, and good, in spite of those riches, that honorable birth, that opportunity for luxurious sloth, which are, in reality, to the clear-judging eye of wise men and angels, their deadliest snare. A motive Willie had long had. His grandfather was old, his mother weak, and both poor. He must be the staff of their old age. He must labor for their support and comfort. He must do more. They hoped great things of him. They must not be disappointed. He did not, however, while arming himself for future conflict with the world, forget the present, but sat down and learned his Sunday school lessons, after which, according to custom, he read aloud in the Bible. And then Mrs. Sullivan, laying her hand on the head of her son, offered up a simple, heartfelt prayer for the boy, one of those mother's prayers which the child listens to with reverence and love, and remembers in the far-off years, one of those prayers which keep men from temptation, and deliver them from evil. After Willie went home that evening, and Gertie was left alone with True, she sat on a low stool beside him for some time, without speaking. Her eyes were intently fixed upon the white image which lay in her lap. That her little mind was very busy, there could be no doubt. For thought was plainly written on her face. True was not often the first to speak, but finding Gertie unusually quiet, he lifted up her chin, looked inquiringly in her face, and then said, "'Well, Willie's a pretty clever sort of a boy, isn't he?' Gertie answered, "'Yes,' without, however, seeming to know what she was saying. "'You like him, don't you?' said True. "'Very much,' said Gertie, in the same absent way. It was not Willie she was thinking of. True waited for Gertie to begin talking about her new acquaintance, but she did not speak for a minute or two. Then, looking up suddenly, she said, "'Uncle True?' "'What say?' What does Samuel pray to God for? True stared. Samuel? Pray? I guess I don't know exactly what you're saying. Why, said Gertie, holding up the image, Willie says this little boy's name is Samuel, and that he sits on his knee, and puts his hand together so, and looks up, because he's praying to God, that lives up in the sky. I don't know what he means. Way up in the sky, do you? True took the image and looked at it attentively. He moved uneasily upon his chair, 
scratched his head, and finally said, "'Well, I s'pose he's about right. This ere child is prayin', sartin, though I didn't think on it afore. But I don't just know what he calls it a Samuel for. We'll ask him sometime.' "'Well, what does he pray for, Uncle True?' "'Oh, he prays to make him good. It makes folks good to pray to God.' "'Can God make folks good?' "'Yes, God is very great. He can do anything.' "'How can he hear?' He hears everything and sees everything in the world. And does he live in the sky? Yes, said True, in heaven. Many more questions Gertie asked, many strange questions that True could not answer, many questions that he wondered he had not oftener asked himself. True had a humble, loving heart and a childlike faith. He had enjoyed but little religious instruction, but he earnestly endeavored to live up to the light he had. Perhaps in his faithful practice of the Christian virtues, and especially in his obedience to the great law of Christian charity, he more nearly approached to the spirit of his divine master than many who, by daily reading and study, are far more familiar with Christian doctrines. But he had never inquired deeply into the sources of that belief, which it had never occurred to him to doubt, and he was not at all prepared for the question suggested by the inquisitive, keen, and newly excited mind of little Gertie. He answered her as well as he could, however, and where he was at fault, hesitated not to refer her to Willie, who, he told her, went to Sunday school, and knew a wonderful sight about such things. All the information that Gertie could gain amounted to the knowledge of these facts, that God was in heaven, that his power was great, and that people were made better by prayer. Her little eager brain was so intent upon the subject, however, that, as it grew late, the thought even of sleeping in her new room could not efface it from her mind. After she had gone to bed, with the white image hugged close to her bosom, and True had taken away the lamp, she lay for a long time with her eyes wide open. Just at the foot of the bed was the window. Gertie could see out, as she had done before in her garret at Nan Grant's. But the window being larger, she had a much more extended view. The sky was bright with stars and the sight of them revived her old wonder and curiosity as to the author of such distant and brilliant lights. Now, however, as she gazed, there darted through her mind the thought, God lit them! Oh, how great he must be! But a child might pray to him. She rose from her little bed, approached the window, and falling on her knees, and clasping her hands precisely in the attitude of the little Samuel, she gazed up to heaven. She spoke no word, but her eyes glistened with the dew of a tear that stood in each. Was not each tear a prayer? She breathed no petition, but she longed for God and virtue. Was not that very wish a prayer? Her little uplifted heart throbbed vehemently. Was not each throb a prayer? And did not God in heaven, without whom not a sparrow falls to the ground, hear and accept that first homage of a little untaught child? And did it not call a blessing down? Many a petition did Gertie offer up in after years, and many a time of trouble did she come to God for help. In many an hour of bitter sorrow did she from the same source seek comfort, and when her strength and heart failed her, God became the strength of her heart. But never did she approach his throne with a purer offering, a more acceptable sacrifice, than when, in her first deep penitence, her first earnest faith, her first enkindled hope, she took the attitude, and her heart uttered, though her lips pronounced them not, the words of the prophet child, Here I am, Lord. End of chapter 7